This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock, a business of intercessory prayer for businesses. Learn more at MarketplaceRock.com. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead. Today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we're going to be talking about the power of leadership. And uh, I wanted to bring on uh, a good friend of mine here, Gene Blanton. Gene, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And you know what? You and I were talking about, you know, as, as right before we got started, um, you know, and it's something I, I see all the time. And, you know, first of all, let's talk about a couple things. Organ- what is an organization? It's two or more people who are, who've come together with a common purpose, right? In leadership, a, a couple definitions of leadership I like. The first one is, you know, it's somebody who has influence, positive influence over somebody else. And another definition, though, is also how to, you know, somebody who's willing to lay down their life for somebody else, right? That's really what Christ talks about as a kingdom leader. And that's not just our physical life, but but it's about our, are we willing to lay down our agenda for the agenda of others? And, and Gene and I were talking about, you know, all kinds of different organizations from public companies, private companies, the military, churches, families. Uh, one of the biggest constraints, and we think about, you know, some of those roadblocks that prevent us from doing our best and equipping others. You know, we look at time and resources and training and equipping. And I think two of the biggest constraints that exist in an organization right now is the, is leadership is the person leading and also lack of vision. And so we're really going to be talking about this today. And Gene, I really appreciate your time. You started out as a Marine uh, in Vietnam. Thank you very much for your service. I know those were some some crazy days. And then you got out of the Marine Corps and uh, you immediately uh, jumped into business. And I definitely want to hear some more about that story. And I know that uh, today you've... Um, you and uh, it's so funny, uh, everybody listening. Uh, when I first moved back to Minnesota in 1998, we were at the Mall of America, and we're we had two little boys, and we're waiting to put them on one of the rides there. They have an amusement park in the middle of the mall, and we we bumped into this amazing couple, uh, Wade and Andriana. Didn't know them, new into town, and uh, they invited us to church, and that developed into a a, a friendship while we were there back in Minnesota. And then as we were connecting the dots, it turns out, and I'd lost touch with Wade, right, Gene? And, and you are Wade's partner. And so mm-hmm. all of us just reconnected and had a, an amazing conversation together uh, over the last couple of weeks. So it's been, it's, been a really, it's been really fun here, hasn't it? Excellent. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those uh, God-ordained uh, appointments. Uh, Wade and I were both – Wade was thrilled to resurrect the uh, – relationship and I, I was just in awe that you guys uh, knew each other uh, that was great yeah that was that was that was really neat now i know you now you've gone through we're going to talk about this from starting your first company summit communications to you know what you're doing now at boldmore growth partners and and starting the you know teaching leadership semper fidelis leadership uh you know and some things that are on your heart right now that we're going to talk about with carry the load here but, you know, here's where I'd like to start, uh, just so people can really, I think, understand, um, 
you know, where where you're coming from. But I'd love to just kind of take us through, you know, you know, getting out of the Marine Corps and getting into business and, you know, just share some of those those early days and those ups and downs that you had, Gene. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. Let me, let me uh, correct the, the record here. Um, I did not serve in Vietnam. I actually raised my hand on April 29, 1975. That was the day that they pulled out of Saigon. So I was trying to get there, being young and dumb. I was trying to get there as soon as I could. But I, uh, when I served, I served from uh, 1975 to 79. I was very... Uh, very fortunate, uh, made from the time I walked into boot camp to the time I put on Sergeant E5 stripes with a total of 17 months. I made four meritorious promotions. I was selected for staff uh, before I got out and had qualified for the uh, MESEP program. But at that, at that time, John, there was no, it was kind of a malaise. Uh, if older guys remember, it was after Vietnam, uh, we had, um, uh, the Jimmy Carter malaise in the White House. And uh, what I didn't know uh, at that time was that there were some great uh, Marines, including uh, General Krulak, who's a committed Christian, who was really in the process of turning around the core, of putting honor, courage, and commitment, and putting the motto, Semper Fidelis, always faithful, really putting that into play. But I didn't see that at that time. And uh, so I was... Uh, I, I didn't see a future, so I got out and, and actually did not uh, see combat while I was in, but I'll tell you the story later. saw it 30 years later <laughs> when I was back with the Marines in L.A. and Bar Province. I'll tell you that story later. But when I got out of the, the uh, Corps, I had uh, gone to one-year school while I was in, in the Corps out at uh, 29 Palms, and then when I got out, I, I took another uh, year here at the University of Texas, Arlington, was taking 17 credit hours, um, you know, driving a forklift uh, 40, 40 hours a week. And after, um, after the last semester that I was just smoked, I hopped on a, a motorcycle, uh, went up and uh, toured the country and met some of my uh, old Marine buddies and uh, was worthless for two or three months. And, as I was coming back, uh, I uh, drove up on a, a microwave tower site where a tornado had walked through the top 500 feet of the, the microwave tower and it torn it all up. And I saw guys working on it and all that. And I said, I'd like to do that. Of course, uh, being an old, old Marine and wanting to work that pile like that, I think at that time in my young and dumb life, I was, uh, I was uh, addicted to adrenaline, so I walked on uh, that site and uh, actually walked off 10 years later when I, I sold uh, my first company. After I got into it, I became the uh, systems manager uh, for LeBlanc and Royal out of Toronto and uh, had the privilege of, of, of heading up the construction for the cellular systems in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, Los Angeles, and uh, then um, way back in 1986, um, uh, stepped out on my own with my beautiful uh, Mississippi wife. We had $20,000 in our our two business partners, Utah and Igret, uh, and <laughs> started the company. Started started the company, uh, John, literally out of our garage. And so then, you've been uh, working in the industry. Sold it 30 look- years later. Yeah. 
So you've been working in the industry and you looked at your, your bride and said, we can do this. So we, we need, but we need to go all in to do this. Yeah, it was there. And actually, uh, she was partly responsible. I met my beautiful bride as, as I was working in Jackson, Mississippi. And, uh, so I had promised her that I would, uh, get her back to, to Jackson. And so after we married, uh, you know, I was bouncing around the country with the other company and, and working in different places. And so I'd asked the company that I worked for, they had committed to me to open an office in, in Jackson and then, then, uh, went back on their promise. And so in the process, they created a major competitor. All right. Okay. So. Gene, you got into Summit Communications. You, you 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 basically put your life savings at the time into this. You started building this company. Um, you know what was that like? You know, there's a lot of people in our audience too that are you know that are uh, business owners. They're building companies. You know, what were some of the the biggest things you focused on outside of just kind of the you know the day to day you know business that you were doing? Well, I, I'd like to tell you that I, I uh, you know, focus in this area and that area and all. I, I really didn't, John. When I say youth and ignorance, I mean that. I, I look back today, and it was just God's grace and mercy <laughs> that, that uh, got, us, got us through because uh, all I knew how to do was, which I'd learned in the Marine Corps, was to lead people and, and get projects done. But at, at that time, I really knew nothing about creating value in a company and uh, and uh, doing doing the things that are really necessary to grow a company uh, long term. So um, that that was a, a great experience from an organizational standpoint and from the opportunity to learn. Uh, but I, I can honestly say I don't think I would use that as a pattern. Uh, for any clients that I have today. <laughs> well, how about this then? You know, looking back in those early days, right? Stepping in, you know, coming out of the military, um, you know, the Marine Corps probably does the best job of training leadership and equipping leaders that I've seen. So you have some of these basic skills. You go in and now you're, you're partnered with your youth and your ignorance, right? So you got the enthusiasm and the energy. Um, you know, just looking back on that period of time, though, what do you think maybe uh, your some of your key learning points are were though that you brought into what you did next? Well, we really uh, did did a couple things that differentiated our, uh, us from from our competitors. Uh, as you can imagine, any of us that are crazy enough to you know kind of work thousands of feet off the ground. There, there's something a little bit off there to start with, and so yeah, I would agree with you on that one. <laughs> you know, if you're not wrapped, if you're not yeah. enclosed in the cockpit, um, you know, working yeah. a thousand feet above the ground on a on a tower to me just sounds terrifying. Yeah, uh, so it says a guy that that lands on a postage stamp in the middle of the night <laughs> in a in a in a storm. Yeah. So I guess it's all relative, John. But um, really, just brought a real uh, degree of of uh, professionalism. Most of our competitors. Uh, you know, guys would uh, be wearing T-shirts, you know, back then, long hair, beards, all that, you know, all that stuff. Well, we, we brought a real sense of professionalism. All of our guys uh, wore uniforms. Our trucks were, 
we're uh, pristine. We just look like professionals. We also uh, went in and and shared in the profits uh, from the beginning. There were would be uh, uh, on occasion we'd go into a a project where the client would demand that we use some uh, union uh, guys, and these guys would always uh, you know try to show our guys how much more per hour they made. Of course, they sit at the union hall, you know, 30, 40, 50% of the time, not working all the time. Yeah. Well, my guys would show them, although they made less hourly, they participated in the profits. And because of that, just blew away the income of, of what their these uh, union guys were. So it, it was doing that and, and really being systematic on the, the uh, safety aspect of it, just, just like a, uh, uh, combat, uh, working at, uh, 2000 feet, that, that's for real. And, uh, a screw up at that, that, um, altitude is not, not very forgiving. So you have to develop really precise, uh, systematic, uh, approaches to getting the work done. And I, I would say that was probably the greatest strength as a, as a young guy that still knew, knew how to execute projects. Uh, didn't know as much about uh, actually building the company, but that was probably the biggest strength that I had at that time in my career. Now, I know, you know, after this, I know you've had a very successful career in business, definitely, you know, some highs and lows. And what you and Wade do now at Boldmore is to really help these, you know, companies, um, especially this heart with baby boomers. We're talking about it, right? How do we you know, you, you know, you exit your, and you sell your company successfully. And the, the thing that I love about what you're doing too, is a, you know, big part of how you look at a team and a company is really kind of that level in that quality of leadership. And I think the words that you said before, some of the biggest impediments to the success and growth of a company, uh, or, you know, even extend that out into an organization is that lack of leadership. And I, I'd love to just hear your thoughts, you know, having worked with, you know, in your own organization, so many other organizations, you know, what are some of those things? How do they show up and how do we, uh, how does somebody, you know, start making some changes that are really going to have, you know, that outcome that creates that leadership legacy? Our, you know, our, our whole, our coaching and consulting company is called Beyond Influence, Gene. And our, our whole goal is how mm-hmm. do we equip leaders to lead so well become their best self, help those around them to become their best selves, to create these high-performing teams and these these cultures and these organizations, especially, right? Uh, like a benchmark for us is if all the millennials who are driving into work on Monday morning can't wait to get to work, you know what, we've created a pretty outstanding culture. But sometimes the road from here to there, um, you know, I don't think a lot of leaders have been, you know, they haven't been given the map and the blueprint and the tools on really how to get there, have they? Well, they, they really haven't. And, and when I, after I, I sold my company, John, kind of the interim piece that really laid the ground for, for what I'm doing today, um, you know, my, my uh, wife uh, walks in and, and uh, she said uh, one day, and she said, Gene, I have a, a real problem with you. She said, it's, um, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, you still have your robe on and you're watching <laughs> cartoons. Uh, <laughs> you're only 30, get out of the house, go find something else to do. So uh, all I really knew as a skill set was what I'd learned, uh, John, as a young NCO in, in the Marine Corps. 
And so I had a buddy of mine that had a, a company. Uh, he was second year in business, bleeding red all over the place. He asked me to come run run it for him. Well, once you've, as you know, once you work for yourself, you're kind of run for life. So I, I went home and looked up advisor in the in the dictionary and came back to him with a participation uh, proposal. And to make a long story short, we took that little company in two years from $1.2 million to $11.1 million from bleeding red to about a 17% pre-tax margin. And I just really now, found that, what I love. Now, that's big. That, ahead, that, that, that's some big growth, Gene. It, it was. And really, uh, John, the, the key to it was is that we, we all we did uh, within that organization uh, you know, we, we defined a lot of things, but kind of the big lift on that was that we decentralized the leadership, uh, just like they, they do in the, the Marine Corps. It's really pushed down to uh, the front line. I, I shared with you earlier, I didn't experience combat uh, uh, until 2005. In 2005, I was 48 years old, and on October the 1st, exactly 30 years to the day from uh, from the time I'd gone to uh, Paris Island, I was actually on patrol with Marines of the 2nd Marine Division. Uh, Major General Jim Williams, who's on my advisory board of our Center for Adults Leadership Institute, uh, just an amazing guy. Uh, Jim has four master's degrees. He worked uh, directly for Ross Perot here. When the shooting started in 2001, he, 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 called, uh, he got called up. And, um, you know, stayed on active duty. I'm guessing that probably financially, just a guess here, that Jim's uh, service to our country probably cost him, uh, I, I'm estimating, uh, a good uh, five, six, seven million dollars worth of, of opportunities because he, 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 because uh, he stepped out of the so private much. sector back into the uh, active he, duty role. He stepped out, stepped back in. Well, we did the, uh, what we call in the Marine Corps, John, jokingly, a, a dope deal, where I actually got over to Iraq uh, in uh, 2005, uh, embedded with the Marines out in Al-Anbar province. I had been teaching this decentralized leadership model and had incorporated that into businesses, but it, 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 it was a, uh, something that I can only explain to you that I, I believe was God clearly uh, communicating to me. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I knew that I was supposed to go over and experience that in, in combat. So I, I had the greatest privilege of my life was uh, patrolling these outhouses like Ramadi and Fallujah with these young Marines uh, there and seeing this leadership model actually work. The Marines have a concept that they call the the three-block war, and I think about this just for a second. You, you've got a 19- or 20-year-old young guy that two years prior to that, mama couldn't get him out of bed in the morning. Uh, he'd probably come from a hip-hop culture, hot trousers hanging off his rear end. Yeah, I know, never said sir or ma'am in your life. And due to that uh, training in the Marine Corps, and in, in the Corps, uh, the Marine Corps' war fighting manual, it says, this is how we break things and kill people. That's only 111 pages. The Marine Corps' guide to values is well over 500 pages. And so they instill in these young guys 
a decentralized model of leadership built around the value of Semper Fidelis, always faithful, the values of honor, courage, and commitment, which we, we share with the Navy, and they inculcate these guys, and then they empower them to make the decisions. So the Marines have a concept they call the three-block war, and just think about this just for a second. This same 20-year-old, uh, we would go through, and uh, they would set up a perimeter and uh, provide, uh, they'd have a young Navy corpsman, and, and these young corpsmen would perform medical feats that, that you would see a uh, doctor do here in the United States because the people there in Iraq had virtually no uh, medical facilities uh, that were anywhere near our capabilities. So this young guy is leading what is, in essence, a, a group of Peace Corps workers. The next block, he's, he's walking down, John, and one of the favorite uh, tactics that the Iraqis would do, if you stole my girlfriend, John, then what I would do, I would turn around, if I'm an Iraqi, I would go to the Marines, and I would tell them John Ramstead is al-Qaeda. So the oh next boy. thing you know, yeah, so the, <laughs> yeah, it gets real fun. This young 20-year-old uh, sergeant is going to have to make a decision. Does he roll this guy up? And, and take the chance there of alienating his family and creating more insurgents, or does he let him go and, t- and have the possibility that he kills a fellow Marine later down the road? Then the next block there in what the, the media loves to call a low-intensity firefight. Uh, if you've ever had uh, lead headed your direction, which I had the opportunity to experience over there, that I promise you, John, there's nothing low-intensity about it. But these young guys have to switch gears from Peace Corps worker to policeman to all-out warrior. They have to do that in life-and-death decisions, split second, and, oh, there's no time to get on the horn and call back to the corporate office and ask for the vice president of operations to get permission to make the decision. And so that is the key of, of how we've been able to take and do what we do. Now, I've done that for years. I, I um, actually went back to Iraq in, in 07, and then uh, I, I really had uh, several years or had large corporate clients, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Federated, John Hancock Life, New York Life, et cetera, where we actually taught them this decentralized leadership model. And uh, then what we started seeing over time is that you could come into a division or you could come into a part of a company and maybe make some impact there. But if there wasn't truly the change at the very top of the organization, we really had very little long-term impact. So we started focusing our efforts with uh, privately owned businesses, uh, you know, in the, the small and mid market, and we could make radical changes by incorporating uh, what we were doing. And so that laid the groundwork to how I ultimately uh, met and, and uh, partnered with Wade Myers in Boldmore and incorporated the stuff that we're doing today into these baby boomer-owned companies. And so that that's uh, just kind of wanted to fill you in on the interim. Uh, well, you know what? That's so fascinating because, you know what, that that example really brings this to life. I mean, think about... I mean, even trying to translate this to, you know, what happens in our in our corporations. But think about, I mean, what you shared, right? A 20-year-old 
who might be the, the most senior or the oldest person of this group that he's leading, he's going from doing a medical mission, you know, the Peace Corps police, to all of a sudden making these decisions that are life and death maybe for his team and these people that are approaching him. And then, you know, now all in the, now you're in a uh, hot war and lead's flying around and they have to be equipped and, and to, they have to be taught. They have the knowledge, they have the training, they have the experience and they're empowered to do that job on the ground. Like you said, without, you know, having to reach up. Right. Um, and so I could you share a little bit about what that looks like, that kind of equipping and training um, that you bring into, you know, a, a, a corporate organization? Well, we're, we're uh, big fans uh, there, John. We kind of build it around um, uh, John Boyd's Oda Loop. Uh, John was a... Uh, probably the greatest uh, fighter pilot that most people have, have uh, never heard of. Uh, John was an Air Force guy, served during the Korean War, and after the, the Korean War, actually went and became the instructor at the Air Force's version of Top Gun School. They, they called uh, John Boyd 42nd Boyd. The reason they called him that was that he had a standing bet with any other Navy pilot, any other Marine pilot, any of the NATO pilots that came through there, that he would allow them in a simulated dogfight, John, to get behind him up in the air in, in what they call the kill position. And the bet was that he would roll out of that and shoot down his opponent and do that under 40 seconds. Uh, in over 3,000 flight hours, John Boyd never lost. Uh, he was absolutely brilliant. He he uh, was considered a maverick inside the Air Force, so he never got promoted to general. So what does an old warship Air Force general do or Air Force colonel do when his career is over in the Air Force? He goes to work for the Marines. <laughs> we'll, we'll take it, take it off cast. But he developed there a decision-making model called the Oda Loop. It's, it's where you... Uh, uh, it's O-O-D-A. You observe what's going on around you. That passes through your orientation. Then you make a decision and you take an action. Uh, actually, he says the most important part of that is our orientation. And so you, you think about it. That's where our decisions stem from. And so within any organization, the whole cultural piece, uh, the, uh, developing a uh, trust within that corporation, uh, developing the, the values, uh, you know, honor, courage, commitment. Uh, the Marines have four leadership principles, 14 leadership traits that kind of define the behaviors of a leader. It creates what I call the, the uh, leadership template. And it, it uh, lays out there, John, and becomes very, it makes everything uh, transparent. Uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps is measured by the same template that that newly minted private is right out of boot camp. And so when you lay in there and actually reorient that, that um, individual, then it impacts not only the decisions they make and the actions they take, but it also impacts and flows the other way on how they observe what's around them. And so what the Marines studied 
is that even though we think so many times we make analytical decisions, the vast majority of the decisions we make are actually intuitive. And so it's extremely important that our orientation is correct. And within an organization, you have an orientation that's correct to make the decisions and take the actions that are going to be necessary to succeed. Yeah, and you know, um, the the OODA loop is a powerful tool. And so if you guys think of this visually, right, you almost, uh, you know, write these four words down, kind of going in a circle, observe, orient, decide, act, with kind of an arrow connecting each one of those. And I love what you said here, you know, about orient, you know, because there's so many things, um, right, in, um, you know, how we've grown up, experience that we've had, maybe we've suffered, you know, abuse, setback, failures. So when something happens, right, I observe something that happens in a work environment. And maybe for me, my orientation is to take this, you know, I feel disrespected or I feel that maybe somebody else has an agenda um, or I'm, I'm reading into the, I'm, you know, so who we are and how we're showing up today, like you said, Gene, completely, you know, that informs how we take that observation and turn it, turn it into an orientation, right, which then impacts the decision we make. And, and what we talk about is, you know what, there's some kind of event that happens, whatever it is, a, a thought is generated. We have, there's a way that we think about it. So maybe my first thought is I feel disrespected. Then there's a feeling, maybe I feel angry about it or hurt, or maybe I feel, you know, affirmed or, you know, um, uh, you know, really good about myself. That's going to infirm the decision. So, you know, going in and working with leaders and to really understand those, that first part of that process, where is that thought coming from? Where is that feeling coming from? What is that action that we're taking? Because repeated actions lead to habits. So this whole loop that you're talking about is just an, a really powerful tool to go back and say, okay, is this, you know, these habits that we have, how we're thinking, how we're feeling, is it getting us the results that we need in our organization, our lives, and our people? And we can go back and start saying, okay, what is it that I need to change? And can I pre-experience, um, you know, maybe a different thought when this happens again? Um, so w when you're working with leaders, Gene, and it sounds like this, you know, the Orient piece is a, is a big part of making some of these changes that really have some, some good outcomes. Where, where, how do you work with somebody to start to make some changes in, in that part of this? Well, there's kind of five, according to board, there's kind of five components of orientation. Uh, the, the, the first one there is genetic heritage. Uh, you know, uh, John Wayne and the greatest, uh, greatest uh, movie ever, The Sands of Iwo Jima, his character, <laughs> Sergeant Stryker, said, uh, life's tough. Uh, it's especially tough if you're stupid. And, uh, uh, comedian, uh, comedian Ron White says, you can't fix stupid. And so I turn that back on myself and say, when I'm talking to audiences, there's certain things that we are gifted in. That's your strength finders, et cetera. So that, that's going to impact our, our orientation. And so to have that success, you're, you're really assessing a lot of that genetic heritage and what, what, what a team member is strong at, what they're, they're not. Uh, the other area there, is uh is uh john uh some of us are good at analysis 
to where we can see the whole and break it down into parts. But really, a lot of success in problem solving has to be with the ability to synthesize. Um, Boyd used the idea of a, of a snowmobile. You know, can you walk in a room and see, you know, just tons of debris there, but within there, pick out uh, some tracks, uh, pick out uh, handlebars, pick out a seat, pick out an engine, and come up with a snowmobile. He said, you need people on your team that can create snowmobiles. Uh, one of those is just what you mentioned, our previous experiences. Uh, that can be good or bad. Uh, the uh, French have a word called deformation professionnel, <laughs> which actually, John, means professional illness. And so if you've got a hammer, you know, everything is, uh, you know, everything uh, looks like it can only be solved with that hammer. If you're an accountant and you come into business, it's all about cutting costs. If you're a sales guy and come into business, it's all about growing sales. So that has to, has to uh, do with it. And then we, we really tell you new information. I, I assure you this after I, I shared with you, I just had a wonderful time uh, here several weeks ago, John, after we connected of, I had to drive down, you know, 300-plus uh, miles to Beaumont, Texas, to celebrate my beautiful mom's uh, 80th um, uh, birthday, and then I drove all the way back. And during that, I was just listening to one podcast after another. That new information reorients you. So anytime you're in training, when you're interacting like you guys do, and you're coaching and bouncing ideas off, that, that does it there. And then the, the main way it has to do with the culture. We're all cult have uh, raised around certain cultures. And when you go into an organization and create that culture of trust by having very defined values that you live out, not just some pablum that's stuck up on the wall, but something right. you actually and that is, that's believe That's such an important live. point. Well, it is. Um, uh, we, we've told companies in the, the, the past there that have asked us to come in and said, look, guys, when we come in there, your people are going to know what leadership looks like, uh, tastes like, and smells like. So um, if, if you don't embody that, then uh, we will actually do you more harm than good because they'll, they'll see the disparity between the two. And I've had a lot of them say, well, we'll get back to you. And uh, which I've never heard that from again. But those, those are basically the issues when it comes to entrepreneurs and the folks that we're dealing with today through Boldmore and my, my partner, Wade Myers, the, the biggest orientation that we make changes in, John, is the entrepreneur themselves. Most uh, entrepreneurs are really nothing more than glorified job owners. Uh, a lot of the businesses, when we go into them, if the owner assumed room temperature, uh, nobody would know where the key to the head was, even though they've got very competent employees. Now, it's one thing to have a, a single practice and a coaching practice and things like that. But if you're looking for a business and you got you shared with me, you guys have already started doing that, the idea is that you ultimately create something that's going to outlast you. We all, when we start our businesses, are integral to the business. It would suffer if, if something happened to us. But many people never make that orientation change. When your uh, whole orientation as an entrepreneur becomes building something that will outlast you, that's when major changes start to take 
within the organization because you observe the marketplace different, you observe potential problems different, and you make decisions based on the value of the company instead of the tyranny of the urgent. Yeah, and what you're talking about is having the mindset as an entrepreneur, and this is a shift for a lot of people. Um, I think they get the the concepts of leadership and management confused. And um, what I always tell people is, you know what, if you're making a decision, whatever role that you're in, let's say you're the CEO, you're making a decision for somebody, you're managing a process. But when you are developing your people, like you talked about, like that young 20-year-old Marine in the field, who's completely taught, they have the knowledge, they're trained, they're equipped, they have the tools um, you've delegated to them. They've had the experience making these decisions. Now they're empowered to do it. When you're developing people and you're in that role, now you're actually leading because you don't have to be that person. And I know a lot of leaders out there, they struggle with you know, overwhelm and burnout. And I believe the root cause of that is because they haven't let go and they haven't properly equipped their people to be making these decisions to, you know, be, you know, making decisions to taking action, you know, when, when they're absent, what do you, what do you think of that? Uh, Absolutely. And, and the, the thing that is just kind of the big aha, John, when you can see in a client's face, the light, light come on, is that it is absolutely the best financial decision to make. Let's, let's say that you've got a, and we do valuations and uh, analysis and that kind of thing, because we're really working with right now, uh, uh, all these uh, all the gray beards like myself, baby boomers, uh, late 50s, early 60s, have built a, a company over the years, uh, but most of their value is locked into that company. And so now they're really starting to think, what do I do in the future? What do I do on the other side? Uh, what's my company worth? How, how do I do this? And so when we run and do the valuation and then we uh, analyze their management team, what, what we tell folks, and this is reality and shows up in the valuation process, the more valuable that owner is to the business, the less valuable the business is to the next owner. And so, so many times there, we, we see a typical scenario where the only way an owner could sell it, because they're so integral to the business, the only way they could sell the company is remain on as an employee for the next buyer, and that rarely works. Here you've had somebody be independent all their lives, and now they're, they're answering to somebody else. And so in the valuation process, Depending on the level of the management team, if you've got a little company that's worth, say, $10 million, just to throw that out, if, if that company will not operate without you, then you may be leaving as much as 20 to 35% of that value on the table. And so now that value is being couched in financial terms. And, and sadly, <laughs> sometimes that's what it takes for somebody to get it. And so then they get very, very excited about doing it. And the beauty part is, John, uh, doing that is driving, not only driving up the value, but we're seeing now a lot of baby boomers that are kind of facing this and they're saying, okay, if I get this XYZ money, even if I invest that into the marketplace, I can't get nearly the return I could from my own business. 
I mean, do you take that 10 million and go get your two or three percent uh, out there? So one of the the alternatives that our plan has is showing somebody how to transition from owner-operator, where they're intricately involved in business, but to decentralize that, get build up that leadership team where they can still remain as a stockholder of the company. And it's all keys on one thing, and that's the ability to develop a decentralized leadership team that can operate, execute efficiently without you. Yeah, so there's some significant benefits there, right? We kind of started talking about, you know, equipping this next generation, creating a leadership legacy, you know, really making an impact in the lives of people around you that outlives our own life. But also, you know, anybody that's building a company, in addition to that, there's some significant financial upside to leading well, to leading differently. And I would really encourage people to, you know, to dig in and, you know, how can people find out more about what, you know, what, what you're doing now, uh, Gene? Well, they can, uh, they can go to Boldmore, B-O-L-D-M-O-R-E.com. I have to tell you real quick, John, you know, I'm uh, there, but it's important. Our audience knows the, the story of my partner, Wade Myers. Wade was uh, born a Mennonite on the frozen plains of North Dakota, raised without electricity. So what does a pacifist Mennonite boy do when he turns 18? He goes into the Army. He uses, uses his GI Bill to ultimately get a master's in, in uh, technology, in IT. So raised without electricity, master's in IT. Uh, worked in the, the corporate world. Uh, was uh, Went back in the Army as an Army Ranger. Fought during the, the first Gulf War. Got out gets his Harvard MBA and uh, has taken and worked with Boston Consulting Group. And uh, he, uh, like I, we took different uh, routes to get here, but just have a passion for uh, these small business entrepreneurs. He he said when he came out of the corporate world, he recognized how tough it was as compared to being in the corporate world. He had all kinds of resources and staff and, and everything else. And so uh, I partnered with Wade a couple of years ago, and we've just been having a blast there on helping folks with this this transition, growing the value of their company, structuring it financially, putting the leadership piece in, defining their markets, all the things that need to be done to really create value and freedom for that business owner. So anybody out there listening, um, you know, I, I would really encourage you to plug in if you're hearing some interesting things here, because uh, what you guys do is very different than than what we do at our company, and uh, uh, it's such important work. So boldmore.com. And also, you know, as we wrap up here, uh, I really want to have you share something you shared with me that was really inspiring um, about Carry the Load and what you're going to be doing in Israel. So, uh, well... Yeah, I, I appreciate that, John. I've I shared with you, no previous birthday ever impacted me. 30, 40, 50, didn't give it a, didn't give it a thought. But when I hit 60 uh, earlier this year, it was like, wow. <laughs> you're, you're not in halftime, Boudreaux. You're, you're in the fourth quarter. <laughs> and so my whole passion, uh, John, in honoring Christ and all that I do, I want to finish well. I want to leave a legacy. Part of what I have the, the privilege to do uh, there is to take and raise funds every year for Carry the Load. It's founded my, by my uh, good buddies, 
Stephen Holly and Clint Bruce, two uh, former Navy SEALs here in Dallas. We've raised millions of dollars for uh, the families of, of our guys that have gone down in combat. But we bring back the meaning to Memorial Day. Memorial Day has, for a lot of the country, has just become you know, a, a burger cookout and, and what's on sale at the mall. Uh, so we're really bringing that back. And so uh, that event is actually here in Dallas is a 20-hour event that goes throughout the night where we're, uh, a bunch of us crazies are carrying backpacks and, and uh, rucks, they call them in the military, and marching throughout the night. And we raise money for, for uh, carry the load. Well, I just I, I teach Semper Fidel's leadership at our church and to men's groups. And uh, in, in what I'm doing and with the whole idea of challenging guys my age that are maybe looking to get out of their business or use their business as ministry to continue, to challenge them to stay in the fight. So uh, March uh, 1st of next year, and I'm taking off all of March and all of April uh, of next year, and uh, Lord willing, if I don't uh, uh, fall off the mountain or get uh, drowned in a, a canyon, uh, there, I'm going to uh, go from the Red Sea in the southern part of, of Israel. Israel has an Israel National Trail that runs uh, from the Red Sea all the way up to uh, Dan up by the Syrian border. It's 620 miles, a uh, thousand kilometers. And I'm going to be doing that. We'll be doing the, the whole PR thing and the social media thing where people can follow it and all, but doing that to carry the load. Uh, for carry the load next year, so I'm I'm getting this old uh, geezer body in the very best possible shape <laughs> that I can right now, and uh, very much looking forward uh, to the opportunity to bring a lot of attention to this fantastic organization. Well, Gene, that's all, 620 miles walking across Israel. Uh, I would love to join you. Um, I don't know if that's something I could physically do since my accident, but I would love to support you financially. And if anybody else out there would like to be part of this and support this great cause, you know, that really supports our veterans and Memorial Day, um, you know, how is there how do, is there any way to get more information or how do, how do people get involved? There is. We're just now, John, putting up there. Uh, we'll have a website at uh, CTL, Carry the Load, uh, INT, C, uh, Israel National Trail, CTL, INT, dot ORG. And we'll have all the info on there, and it'll be a, a deal where folks can come on and they can pledge uh, so much per mile or so much per kilometer. It's a thousand kilometers, a, a one million meters, and they can uh, do that and, and uh, uh, pledge so much there and uh, be able to be plugged in and follow, uh, follow the journey. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so the links for that for um, ctlint.org um, will be in, in the show notes, everybody. So let's connect in that. Let's support Gene with what he's doing in this. And we're going to make a big pledge uh, for this, my friend, and uh, happy to do that. And, uh, you know, if there's anything at all myself or our audience can do for you, um, man, please don't hesitate to reach out. I've just loved talking with you. And as, as we just wrap up, Gene, just any final thoughts to leave with with everybody who's been listening? Well, just the uh, I, I would challenge uh, there uh, anybody, especially those groups of folks that are that are my age. Uh, a lot of times, God's blessed us financially, 
uh, we've got a lot of freedom to do what we want to and everything else. But if you look historically, uh, some of the greatest biblical leaders there ever were, they shined in their last years. And so I, I would just challenge people out there physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally to get engaged. And the way they can do that is to give and pour themselves into this next generation of leaders. The future of our country uh, and the future of our world will depend on whether godly people take the time to mentor and train and bring up. You know, uh, David said, uh, Psalm 78, 72, said David led them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, and with skillful hands. So it takes attitude, it takes the, the character, and it also takes the confidence. And so anybody that, that is looking for what to do on the other side of your venture or what to do within your venture, develop leaders. And that, that's my message. Mm, I, I couldn't agree more. Develop leaders and talk about a way to not only create a, just a phenomenal organization, but to really create a legacy, right? It's always our, I guess, our one of our core principles, right, is we want to live our life so the use of our life outlives our life. And you know what, that, that, this, that is one of the best ways to do that. It also honors our faith uh, and, and, you know, it also builds the kingdom. So Gene, thank you so much for your time and who you are. And please give my best to Wade and uh, uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. That'll work, sir. Thank you, brother. Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. As I said at the top, this edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock. Is there something that feels like it's blocking your business? The team at Marketplace Rock partners with you in unearthing those things that could be holding you back through intercessory prayer. Just earlier this year, Vicki told me while she was praying, she heard from me, to water the seeds. I knew exactly what it meant and got some business out of it. Another time she was praying and accurately described one of our dogs who turned out needed medical attention. John and I can't recommend the team at Marketplace Rock highly enough. In fact, our phone calls with them are the highlight of our week. Visit them online, marketplacerock.com, or listen to either of Amy Everett's past interviews with us, episodes four and 66 marketplacerock.com. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.